0: Children of all ages, the Radio presents the greatest dance in the world, the market Samuel Plan, the Devil's Advocate Shinobi, the Unity King Maverick, and single syllable Mother, the right side of the pond. And of course, if you're not down with that, we get. What's up, Lords of Pain, and welcome to the wet side of the pond. It is Friday,
1: and uh, you're back with your UK wrestling friends. Last week, we started a sort of little series looking at Mount Rushmore of wrestling matches, and this week, we're going to do the same, but for some less obvious choices. We're going to call it the Hipster Rushmore. We've got four each. Uh, we're going to do two each this week, and then two each the next week, and they're kind of matches which... Uh, less obvious as a uh, Mount Rushmore, but in some ways better than the more, um, than the more obvious ones. So yeah, uh, it's going to be, going to be a very cool show. We like our hipster choices here. These maybe aren't as hipster as some of our choices have been in the past. Um, cause obviously they've got to be on a Mount Rushmore. So it couldn't just be some sort of five minute match from 1983.
0: I think. As much as we might be tempted to <laughs> try and sell that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a hipster rushmore rather than a rushmore of hipster matches yeah no absolutely makes sense yeah exactly it's a kind of alt uh mount rushmore i guess um so but we may want to distance ourselves from the term alt these days
1: this is true i was thinking it more in the way i grew up with it which is like you know alternative music uh but we were yes, doomed it, from the start. It has now been co-opted, unfortunately. So yes, I shall I shall correct my uh, my language on that one. So mm-hmm. um, let's let's get into it then, plan. So what was your your first pick?
0: I decided to go for the 1992 Royal Rumble match uh, because it's first of all a match that obviously has a reputation that precedes itself. You know, if uh, if you're a WWE fan, even a, a more <clears throat> excuse me. Of more recent years, uh, you've probably at some point heard people waxing lyrical about 1992's Royal Rumble. When it's that time of year, um, it is a, a bravura performance from from Ric Flair, uh, who is the first guy who obviously does the the. Well, it's not quite coast to coast, but it's basically coast to coast. He comes in third and, and obviously goes on to win it. But it's also a match that I've referred to in the past many times, including in my book, 101 WWE Matches to See Before You Die, uh, as the Royal Rumble's coming of age, because this was the first time that the Royal Rumble was about something more than just itself. It was the first time that there was a prize, first time there were tangible stakes embroiled in the victory obviously Hulk Hogan had won sort of the two years prior to that and before him it had been an even more curious thing with Big John Studd in 89 and of course Hacksaw Jim Duggan in 88 but Ric Flair's victory here crowned him the world champion, and of course, the next year Yokozuna's win would see him be the first man to earn that WrestleMania main event shot at the world championship. And the rest, as they say, is history. And when you think about the way that WWE's product has functioned in its modern history, then you, you know you can't you you can't ignore the Royal Rumble any more than you could ignore WrestleMania. I mean, it, the the two are obviously attached at the hip and have been for some decades now, but Royal Rumble has often been a platform to either uh, underscore who, quote unquote, the man is at the time or a platform to elevate someone to being near that position. It has been host of many incredible stories, not just of victors, but of, of losing efforts as well. And while the Royal Rumble obviously started in 1988, its history, as we know, it really started in 1992, which isn't to write off the Royal Rumbles before 1992. Nin- 1990 in particular is 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 excellent, but rather the idea of the Royal Rumble as people know it today that started in 1992 and it meets all the criteria you know, it's it's got the historic significance, it's got the match quality to this day, a lot of people will say it's the best Royal Rumble match, I wouldn't put it anywhere quite near that spot myself honestly, but uh, you know, it's it's nonetheless got that reputation. It's got the 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 cast of of all star characters, you know, legends of the business, both uh, in terms of their ascendancy and in their infancy, both. Uh, and it's and it's a, a riotously fun affair to sit through, even now. It ages well. It never really seems to age poorly and it's vitally important in terms of forming the history of the Royal Rumble match uh, and the role that that's played in in WWE's history uh, I think it's I think quite honestly it could be a strong contender for just a simple Mount Rushmore of matches but it's perhaps a less obvious one to consider I
1: think because it's multi-man it's like this is the thing isn't it when you think about um all those matches was last week they're all big one-on-one matches with the you know the kind of biggest stars of the time and um, 1992 is remarkable when you you look at the talent in the ring, and it's like it they just keep coming. Um, it's it's a best of the rock and wrestling era, really. Even to the way. point yeah. that you've got Ric Flair, who you know, uh, let's be honest, is the only person sort of who'd been missing um, from WWF. You know, the sort of the the only great star that they'd been kind of missing from that era. And then he showed up in, in WWF and had this incredible impact. Um, and when,
0: and when you think about Ric Flair in the WWF and like WWE, I mean, I don't think there's any other match that he ever wrestled that came close to touching this. So you're talking about Ric Flair's best, you know, the best match of arguably the best wrestler. A lot of people will say in the biggest wrestling company in history. That's, that's, that's alone enough of a, of a, of an upside. the stakes, is, is really what makes this,
1: I think, as you said. And, you know, we talked last week about CM Punk and the ticking clock and the stakes. And, you know, the, the fact that the the belt was on the line after all this shenanigans with you know, them giving Undertaker the belt way before he was ready for it. <laughs> and then them realising that was a terrible idea and <laughs> that all of this sort of stuff to set up what was meant to be originally uh, Hogan Flair and then for whatever reason they pulled out of it and did, and did Savage instead. Um, but, but you know, at this point, you know, the purity of it as a as a concept of, you know, the luck of the draw and who is going to go in early and Flair getting that number three uh, and going all the way to the end and it, the histrionics and the Bobby commentary and commentary. And, you know, I'm lucky enough to have been 12 years old when it happened and to have, you know, lived that excitement that, that, that it was. And, you know, the days where you did have to wait two days, spoiler free. For your mate to give you a VHS copy that someone's dad had taped off Sky. Um and I like honestly, just the nostalgia alone of it every time I watch it is is so so strong. Um but it's it there's so many great like little stories within the larger story as well, and you know, the way they do the kind of the final they kind of have like a final six and then a final four, don't they? And it's it's really really incredibly done. And as you say, so many tropes of the rumble are basically being invented. In front of our eyes, um, and that's you know, and that's a pretty special thing too. I think you take all of the, as Doc likes to call them, intangibles of this match. That you've got a hell of a recipe. The measurable intangibles. Well, yeah, I mean, in this case, you'd have to say that it's like <laughs> one of the more important things about the match.
0: Well, it, it's, I, I mean, I did a, a show on Sports Team is Dead way back in January of this year where I uh, was doing hour-long shows and broke down the Royal Rumble as a genre of wrestling in, in really some detail. In 1992, um, you know, really exhibits the a lot of the best versions of, or a lot of versions among the best of the tropes that inform that, that match. So it's, it you know... It, like i said it's it's just got a longevity that doesn't fade i i've obviously was too young to be watching it when it happened but uh, i've watched royal rumbles live many times since i've gotten older and i know how exciting even some of the the more mundane ones can be when you watch them live so i can certainly you know i have a point of reference definitely for how exhilarating it must have been watching it play out at the time and uh, it's 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 just such an it's it's quiet about it but it's such an important match when you really begin to put it into a frame of context the role it's played in the history of the Royal Rumble and then the role that the Royal Rumble has played in the history of WWE, it's got a great deal of meaningful weight to it that I think probably should be talked about more I don't buy into the notion that it is the best Royal Rumble, as I said, I don't think it is, Uh, frankly it wouldn't even be among my top five or six, but Uh, but uh, 4 out of 10. But it's it's certainly, uh, you know, it's got a reputation to, of being that for a reason uh, because it appeals to a lot of people. And I think that even wrestling fans reared on the product of more recent years would find it very entertaining. That might be in part because what you were saying, you know, it's a multi-man match. So in a lot of ways, it can, it can hide behind that in ways that singles matches can't. But I don't think that that should... Uh, preclude it from inclusion in any conversation about the the rush more of wwe matches that we're having and sort of the semantics that that entails i think it's a, a very worthy choice and a very worthy uh, inclusion in that conversation and,
1: re- and remember what we said as well like a lot of the time on this show about how the modern hyperactivity of the product and the you know, overly lengthy and overly bombastic sequences and all of those things that that we've kind of railed against. And I think the reason why this match stands up so well um, is because you had, you know, of the 30 people in the ring, probably at least 20 of them were some of the best craftsmen that have ever, you know, been in this business. And you, you just think all of that expertise, they didn't need anyone to write a script for them, they didn't need agents to walk them through everything. They just went out there and did what they did, which was just to, you know, call stuff in the ring, react to the crowd, know roughly when they were meant to get thrown out. And, and they just kind of got on with it. And that's what really stands out to me is an era where they trusted their stars to just get the job done. And, and that's something which, you know, I think we could very much do with going back to
0: certainly and you know the other thing the the real genius of it for me and the reason why it probably has has attained that status in my mind as you know the coming of age of the run one one reason why it succeeded so inimitably was it piles on um a number of of new innovations because it's the first time it's wrestled for for tangible stakes it's the those tangible stakes are for a world championship, not just a shot at it, but for the actual world championship. It piles on stories within the story, uh, which had kind of happened before, but not anywhere near as as to the degree that you see it here, I don't think. Uh, you anchor all of that around a, a single narrative thread that runs from end to end. You know, you have that journeymanship, which is one of the key tropes that I talked about in that SEID show in January, of, of Rick Flair being there from number three right through to the end. And I think it's important always in a Royal Rumble to have someone who has been in early at the end so you get that sense of connectedness to both ends of the match. Uh, you get the, the story of Bobby Heenan on, on commentary, um, you know it's it just it it takes the you know the roster of talent as we said but it takes one idea and then th- one new idea tangible stakes it throws in another new idea an Man performance that actually emerges with a winner on the other side of it um, and it, it, it seems to have absolutely no lack of confidence in knowing that it can it can achieve what it wants to achieve there's no there's no sense of hesitancy or rec- uh, um uh Oh, the word's gone. I've lost the word. Hesitancy. Sorry? Hesitancy. I said that one, yeah. Hesitancy. Um. Uh, the word's gone. I was going to say something else, and it's total. I've had a brain freeze, but there we are. You know, there's no hes- reticence. There you go. There's no hesitancy or reticence. In the way that you get in a match like 2016, you know, where they where they pulled a similar trick and they were kind of pushing Roman Reigns, but they weren't confident enough to do it. So you got this weird thing where he got injured, but not so bad. He had to be carried out, but he still walked out and then he was gone for large portions, but they were still beating up his eye. You know, there's none of that. It's it's It commits entirely to these first ever ideas and it pulls it off with, and mind upon, a great deal of flair. And that's why it's such a brilliant shining example and it's vitally important to the history of the rumble and all of these things, you know, I absolutely, it's, it was the when we decided to do the show, it was the first match that came to my mind for inclusion.
1: Excellent. And a very good choice too. Um, mine is, is, is I think just as in, just as important in a lot of ways. Um, and is a match that I think, you know, does get talked about a fair bit, but, um, it's the fact that it took place on TV that kind of sends it into this kind of hipster list because TV matches have got this reputation of being, you know, these kind of throwaway, uh, throwaway things that no one, you know, kind of will remember after they've happened. It's like they're there to sell the pay-per-view or they're there just to kind of, you know, entertain the live crowd, but, you know, it's nothing particularly consequential. Um, but Bret Hart versus the 123 Kids. From Monday Night Raw uh, is you know, remains, I think, the very greatest TV match that's ever taken place, and for my money, would comfortably make a top ten list of greatest matches of all time. I really, I really feel that strongly about it, and it's not just the the way that Bret Hart turns the one two three kid into a legitimate star over the course of the match, or you know, somebody that could very comfortably seem that he would be able to get absolutely everything out of Brett Hart in defending his title. You know, it's the fact that they just, you know, they just have the crowd and the palm of their hands and, you know, the way in which they do the, the, the underdog story is so not cloying, you know, it's, it's something which is inspiring at the same time, you know, you, you really feel what's going to happen at certain points and it doesn't quite happen. Um, it's it's just an absolute work of art. Um, and, and dare I say, you know, it, it's it's the Bret Hart match that I think, you know, if somebody said Bret Hart to I me, mean, how does Bret Hart wrestle? I would think of this match, you know, because obviously he has other matches like the Austin one we talked about last week, but that's actually in many ways an atypical Bret Hart match. Like this is the one where it's like the excellence of execution. Um, and it's the match where probably Shaw Walton most completely put together all of the talent he had and that maybe and this is an arguable point I guess and I've defended it a lot but, but arguably didn't quite fulfil um, but he, all of it comes into this match um, and from the very moment they lock up until you know the climax it's just brilliant and I think they've tried to repeat this trick a, a, a lot of times since this match happened and I don't think they've ever come close to it um they've tried to do things in the spirit of it. Uh on this show we got very excited with the Seth Rollins uh Neville um match a few years ago, uh which was definitely in the spirit of this. But of course it's modern day WWE, so they didn't quite have the guts to to push it in the way they pushed this. Um and you know, I think when, when was the last time I rewatched this? I think the last time I rewatched it was maybe like a year and a half ago. Um and now I'm talking about it. I think I want to go and watch it straight after we finish the show. Hmm. But it is it is the greatest TV match of all time. It is a match that shows how to push an underdog while maintaining the integrity of your champion. Um, and it's a, a tribute to everything that Bret Hart was as the leader
0: of the new generation, I think. Um, it's it's a fascinating choice. Uh, the fact that, as you say, it's... Um, I. I would have to think about whether or not I'd be willing to go all in and say it's the greatest TV match of all time, but certainly it's in in that conversation. A lot of people would, would name it so. That's not an unjust statement to make by any stretch. Uh, and that it very well could be is, is you know, reason enough alone for it to be on a, a, a hipster Rushmore. Uh, but I think for me that the real take-home of it was your second point there, which was, you know, the fact that it's the... Uh, the essential underdog story uh, in, in probably all of WWE's history. And it's sad that people uh, don't seem to fully understand the context of why that is uh, because of the general ignorance that there exists towards the new generation area. You know, the one, two, three kid version of Sean Walton, at least, which for me is the only version. Uh, is uh, really, for a lot of people, a a tale of two matches. The initial infamous upset over Razor Ramon in 93, and then this match, which was, in a lot of ways, the logical conclusion to, or even the logical second half, let's say, to what happened with with Razor Ramon. Which is, you know, that first upset takes him to the very pinnacle, but he comes up short. And you know when, when they did the weird thing with Jinder Mahal, a lot of people race. Oh, look, the one two. They saw what they did with the one two three kid, and actually, yeah. it was nothing like what they did with the one two three kid at all. It could bear. It couldn't bear less resemblance to what they did with the one two three kid. Because the wonderful thing about this match was that the one two three kid had been a prominent presence on the roster in in sort of work, workhorse mid-card matches since he beat Razor Ramon in 1993. That was a, a huge story through the spring and summer of 1993 that parlayed into a number of others. He had a short tag team title reign with Marty Giannetti in what seems to be some weird fantasy that got plucked out of Mav's head and popped <laughs> in history. Um, and uh, against great matches against the Quebecers. And he was, you know, I mean, he was, but if, if people want to know how important the One Two Three kid was to this entire era, the best way to think about it is he was to Razor Ramon what Shawn Michaels was to Diesel in a lot of ways, or vice versa. So what you know, they the one two three kid Razor Ramon relationship mirrored the Shawn Michaels Diesel relationship in a lot of ways, and one was one was one of the most important relationships through this era. And this match that he had with Bret Hart was, I think he had other high points later, but arguably none so high as this marvelous piece of work between these two, that demonstrates what you can get when you have a championship on the shoulder of an incredibly intelligent once in a lifetime in-ring performer with a knack for storytelling and a desire to take the storytelling seriously and not take liberties with it and to treat the audience with intelligence but it also is a demonstration of what you can achieve if you have had a consistent sense of roster positioning in which there is a character like the 123 kid who you aren't necessarily intending to you know push to the stars whose career isn't toxified by conversations about how you're a failure unless you become a world champion who has an emotional connection with the audience that is able to be played upon to create a classic television match like this that lives in immortality because of its achievements but it wouldn't be able to do that if it wasn't for the emotional connection that the audience had been allowed to develop with the 123 kid who was a character that though prominent was solidly very much in the mid card but no less committed to the main event talents in terms of character depth and character progression, and that's you know, in I mean, frankly, it's not just a match that demonstrates the best version of an underdog story in WWE, and it's worth saying that WWE have long been obsessed with the underdog story, though they rarely seem to get it right. Uh, and nor is it just necessarily put just in inverted commas, just arguably the greatest TV match ever. It's a it's a towering monument to everything that the product used to benefit from but no longer has. Uh, and, and that makes it a, a, a vital historical article as well. And, you know, if you want to look for a modern equivalent of the 123Kid, uh, look to Mustafa Ali today uh, because he's very much in the same place that the 123Kid was there. And if they put Ali in, you know, a random world title match, uh, because make no mistake even though there was a logic behind the 123 kid getting a title shot because he'd been a prominent character you know 2 weeks 3 weeks before this he was wrestling Nikolai Volkov in a generic enhancement match on raw so it, the, the title match itself was quite sudden um so you know if they put Ali in a, in a in a world title match against Kofi Kingston or whomever you know on smackdown in a couple of weeks and it turned out to be a, a, an all-time classic that's the kind of magic that can that it can happen. That's the kind of magic that this match has. And at the very least, you know, if you don't accept, for whatever reason, that it's not that it's the greatest TV match of all time, if you don't accept that it's not the the essential underdog story in WWE history, if you don't accept that it's a towering monument to everything the product doesn't currently ha- have that it could benefit from, at the very least, you can look at it as an instruction manual and see it and say, okay, well, you know, how do we mirror that? And then if you're able to mirror that you benefited already immensely I think you'd say that you know the wwe product which comes closest to
1: replicating the kind of thing that that was happening with the 133 kid is that you know it's probably NXT UK and that you know this you can imagine them being able to do this thing where you take a character out of the mid cars put them against the reigning champion have him be a you know give a game show um, well before they, losing. They...
0: My understanding is they sort of did it. Didn't they? they do it with Travis Banks and they Walter. They did,
1: yeah, exactly. And it's that it's that sort of thing, you know, when you've got a character that can go can go up and down, you know, the mid cards, the main event and so on. That's really, really important. And yeah, it, it was. I, I loved what you said about you know Bret Hart as a, a once in a lifetime performer, and and you know, and he really was. And the thing is, you could fill up countless Mount Rushmores with Bret Hart matches. And you know, on on this show, you know, Plan and I would always beat the drum for Bret Hart because you know you could be there for days and just you know kind of never run out of bret hart matches to kind of put on a list like this
0: that's it we're doing it we're doing a bret hart rushmore after
1: (laughs) (laughs) uh we actually did that with doctor we we did yes absolutely (laughs) um yeah it's it is it is just a brilliant match and uh, you know as you say the product has lost so much of that sort of ability to to create a scenario like this but if they did it would do so much to bring vitality
0: back to the product um the... i mean a match if if a match comparable to this happened today it would set the internet alight people would be you know loving every second of it and talking very animatedly about how this instant classic just happened. Maybe the fact that I find that difficult to envision is part and parcel of the issue. Maybe in in the age of the internet, it can't happen anymore. But, uh, you know, that's a a conversation perhaps for another day. Indeed, indeed. So, Claire, what's your second choice? Uh, My second choice, there's one of two that I've got in mind that I might uh, talk about. Let's talk about Montreal. Uh, which is a dangerous another um a dangerous suggestion when I'm around but there we are um because we've always said this you and I uh and I know others around LOP have said it too um certainly I wrote it at length and did a lot of research about Montreal when I was writing the column version of of 101 w matches to see before you die um and it's a very very well documented subject there's no end of material out there that will offer a take on it you can glean all kinds of conflicting information about it it's still not really very clear exactly what happened and why but and, and a lot of people get distracted with the ludicrous conversation about whether it was a, a, a work or a or a shoot and i honestly think that that's the most pointless conversation that any two people in wrestling could ever have but we've always said the thing that people forget about it is that Quite aside from the way it finishes in front of that you have twenty minutes of an absolutely outstanding match uh, that nobody ever talks about and because it 's Montreal so you, you know you don't talk about the match when you 're talking about Montreal you talk about the screw job and the truth is that if the ending hadn 't been screwy if the finish hadn 't been what it was even I think to this day it would be talked about in the same vein that we talk about matches like you know, Bret Hart and Austin and, and the Ironman match and so many early Shawn Michaels matches as well. Um the Ironman match obviously the the kind of the, the the pinnacle of Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels in the ring. But you had one reason why I love Montreal so much is it was such a different version of their of their work together. Now we're talking Rushmore, so obviously one of the major reasons why I think it contends inclusion is is because precisely because of the way it ends, because that's what gives it its historical weight and its historical significance. But I think what we need to start doing collectively as a wrestling fan base more is platforming from that into a conversation about how tremendous the work they do before the finish actually is, which is two titans of the ring game, you know, at the height of their talents. Shawn Michaels, never more despicable. Bret Hart, never edgier. Uh, and And they have the most convincing sort of fist fight before the match, which was such a unique thing. I remember the first time I ever saw it and it's never really it's never really been done again. We've had kind of screwy starts to matches, but to see something this pro they have a match before the match. Yeah. Um and it's and it's wonderful and they go into the crowd, but because I don't know, presumably it hadn't it hadn't been produced ahead of time for them to do that, so the crowd are literally on top of them. They disappear in this massive humanity more than once. And it's a deeply partisan crowd. The vitriol being spewed at Shawn Michaels is really quite something to behold. The ringside area, teaming with with referees, you see Vince McMahon out there. You know, it's only that kind of an environment that could then um, allow an opening for them to pull what they pulled at the end of the match. And then after that match, before the match, they have the match itself, which is heavy hitting and, 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 uh, you know... um, again you can feel the the vitriol behind every every punch and every move and it feels gritty and earthy and, and like a sweat box and it's it's really quite a visceral experience and that's probably because of the the what we know to be the real life animosity between the performers at the time. Uh you know it's taking place it's the headlining match at one of the Big Four pay-per-views of that year, a year which had stellar Big Four pay per views maybe with the exception of the Rumble perhaps. Um, and generally speaking, not only is it historically significant because it shifted, I mean, it's a match that didn't just inform history, it practically drew history for the next few years, didn't it, in terms of, you know, it's 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 heralded as the birth of the Mr. McMahon character, it saw Brett depart to WCW rather than Sean. You know, to this day, in fact, you could argue we are living in the world we're living in because of the way that Montreal went down. Because, you know, Bret Hart's con- original 10-year contract had him transitioning, I understand, from, you know, into a role backstage. So maybe he'd have adopted the kind of role that Triple H has, has taken on. You know, how would uh, something like NXT look like under the watch of Bret Hart rather than the clique? You know, you're talking about the entire way ring fashion has evolved in the last 10 years in the United States. Uh, maybe even longer than that. And so Montreal has a towering and far-reaching historical legacy, which is then augmented by the fact that quite aside from that, it's just another phenomenal match. No, indeed. I think... between, between arguably the premier pairing in the ring of all time. I think he's
1: forgotten a lot, isn't it? The, the, the chemistry between Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, regardless of their personal dislike of each other. And, you know, if you kind of read their accounts of it really that only started to kick in just before WrestleMania 12 but you know despite that they just had the most amazing chemistry and um, when they were in the ring together it was always it was always magic you know and they they just they just gelled together so perfectly and the fact that they did legitimately hate each other by this point in time made that match all the more compelling um, and it is remarkable to see them do that brawl around the crowd. And it's produced so in such a raw fashion as well. Like, it's not like it is now the gaudy stage sets and the, you know, and the sort of uh, very sanitized, lit up arena. And, you know, everything's got that Kevin Dunn filter over it. And it's not like that. It's raw, it's gritty, it feels, you know, I hate saying this, it feels like a real fight. Um, and, uh, but it, and it does
0: though, and that's and that's so key to its to its success.
1: And it was so different to anything they were doing. I mean, we talked last time about how, you know, the attitude era been gestating for a long time, and you might argue that WrestleMania 13 gave birth to it. This match is, in many ways, as much responsible, not only because of the the way the match is produced. um up to the Screwjob, but also the Screwjob would then become the leitmotif of the era. You have it recurring the next year as they try to get The rocks to become a star and succeed. You know, you, you see it come up again and again. You saw it come up, um, you know, recently during... <laughs> it's come up during Roman Reigns' ascendancy. It's come up um, during CM Punk's ascendancy. It's like the echo of the, the Screwjob. And as you say, the McMahon character and... You know, Kevin Owens and Shane Marne currently retreading Evil Boss v. Blue Collar Worker for the 900th time. You know, it all comes back to this, doesn't it? Um, and the saddest thing really is I'd love to have seen what the real finish <laughs> was going to be, um, because it is it is a sort of such a jarring moment still. I remember we did this, me and Mazza, for Attitude, and you're you're watching it. And you're not expecting that moment when the bell suddenly rings and everyone's just confused. No one knows what's going on. Brett and Sean are still awkwardly entangled in a sharpshooter. You know, sort of they smuggle Sean off to the back. Brett's like, you know, stalking around the ring. It's it's truly as, as kind of um, bizarre an ending to a reality TV show that you're ever kind of likely to see. And... You know, it's 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 sad and it's tragic and you can't take your eyes off it and for those reasons alone it's something which I, I think, you know, needs to be talked about a lot more than just here's this five seconds when the bell rung and here's Vince cutting a promo two weeks later saying Brett screwed Bret, you know.
0: Well, quite. Um and I mean, in terms of the real finish, we know from uh, recordings on Wrestling with Shadows that it was going that they were planning on a big schmoz, I think they call it, where everyone sort of ends up running in and it all turns into a big kind of fist fight, and, and, which I guess was going to be fueled by the whole gang wars thing that they had going on. Um, but even that would have been, you know, a, a fitting conclusion to the story that they told, which, as we've said, was this snarling, gnashing, biting story between the two of them. You know, I mean, it's it, it's funny because it's it, if the screw job hadn't have happened, you are essentially talking about chapter two in what I would assume would have eventually gone on to be a three chapter story um, that started in 1996 with the Iron Man match, which is a, a long span of time for them to have really circled around one another without full on meeting in the ring, and you wouldn't get that today. What would have happened today would they have had a rematch at Good Friends, Better Enemies, and then always soon as Brett came back rather from his hiatus. And then there'd have been, you know, by the time they'd get to another WrestleMania, they would have wrestled each other six or seven more times. Um, It's the rarefied air of it that I think lends a lot of, of prestige to the match. I know that's a word I tend to try to avoid to use, but I think it's fitting in this case. You know, it feels like a big deal as well. It's There's not a lot of Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels matches in a prominent position for people to revisit. They've wrestled a bunch of sort of minor stuff that you can pick up on their greatest rivalries, Blu-ray. But in terms of pay-per-view matches, in terms of feature matches, there's not a lot of them. Uh, and like we say, or like I just said, I think... There's only one other pairing that I think would come close to rivaling Brett and Sean in the ring in terms of their chemistry, um, which I won't share because people will just roll their eyes. Um, but it's still quite possible that they are the best, I think, pairing I've ever seen in the ring. And then you're talking about, you know, one of one of their few featured matches, one of only two of no, one of only three of their matches to have headlined a, a big four pay-per-view. Um, and and I mean. What's really fascinating is when you start wondering whether or not, quite apart from the finish, it was their best match. I mean, that's the curious thing, because it's so unlike the others that they'd wrestled. They wrestled at Survivor Series 92. That's very much like the Iron Man match redacted in a lot of ways. Um, The Iron Man match itself is this big, sweeping, expansive piece of work that a lot of people find dull. But this one is the one that can survive the test of time. This is the one... That you could plonk down five years later, ten years later, fifteen years later, and it still work. Uh, at, at least, again, aside from the conclusion. Um, so it's timeless. It's got the quality. It's got the 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 uh, the talents at the heart of it. It's got the, uh, the the historic significance because of its its conclusion. And again, I cannot overstate the importance of its conclusion. Um, you know, it's 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 what one of maybe three or four events in wrestling history that's got its own name. You know, Montreal is its own name, Mon- the Montreal Screwjob. It's such a unique piece of wrestling history and such an important piece of wrestling history that I don't think you can pass over it when it comes to talking about this sort of thing, quite honestly.
1: No, absolutely. It's, it's, it's always going to be there. Um, and it's just a case of remembering perhaps some of the more positive aspects of it, which is that it was one hell of a match before it got interrupted.
0: I th- Absolutely. I mean, the conclusion that I drew when I wrote the original 101 column I did on it, because I think it is a match that can genuinely teach us something valuable in life as well. Um, you know, you think about the amount of time Sean and Brett had to carry this around with them uh, in terms of their you know their wrestling careers but you know especially in brett's case in terms of his personal life as well i mean it 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 robbed him of something that was very dear to him uh for a long time uh, and when they you know when he came back in 2010 and there was something of a of a of a kind of repatriation between the two of them how sort of deeply felt that was i guess only they really know but at least it was – and I, I very vividly remember watching that Monday Night Raw live. I stayed – I, you know, I, I made – took the time off work specifically to watch it. In fact, I wasn't at work at the time. I was still at university. But um, took the time to watch it with my best mate who was a huge Shawn Michaels fan. Um, and, you know, seeing Brett back on WWE TV, seeing them come, confront one another, I was physically shaking with, uh, with excitement, nervousness, trepidation. It was a huge deal. And, you know, it was great to see them – sort of move past that um i don't know if you've seen their greatest rivalries yeah sit down I, interview they I, did
1: I, may, I mean it's one of my favorite things i watch it all the yeah. time
0: yeah <laughs> it's it's absolutely tremendous and but there's there's a line in it that's always really stuck with me which is when sean's talking about montreal uh, and he just says it was it wasn't fun being that guy and you get a real sense of just how much of a dark cloud this has been i think over both men for such a long time and so revisiting montreal you know i think is important because it shows you how toxic it can be if you carry that kind of resentment around with you for so long um especially over something as ultimately quite simple as professional wrestling which is so such a profoundly emotional experience to have anytime you sit down and watch professional wrestling be it in the negative or or positive positive. Um, you know, one of the reasons I've stepped away from it is for the sake of my mental health because it was genuinely you know, starting to have an adverse effect on me because you develop that kind of a, of a connection to it. And that's just as fans. So I can only imagine the connection they have to it as performers, especially lifelong prominent performers like Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. Um, and I think their story when it comes to Montreal and, and where they eventually got to with it many years later, I think is a testament to um how you shouldn't carry that kind of toxic corrosive resentment around with you yeah and and of course you know the uh,
1: the ultimate <laughs> tragedy of it was that you know brett fully intended to do right by by vince and and drop the belt he just didn't want to do it in montreal and and to so sean you know and that whole thing um you know probably could the whole thing could have been avoided just by vince being less paranoid but he was fighting for his life, wasn't he, at the time, and and I guess made the decision that he made, and only you know, only Vince knows how he feels about that, I suppose. Um, all right, so uh, last one for this evening, my uh second pick. Um, so I am gonna go uh with the Dolph Ziggler v Alberto Del Rio uh match from Payback 2013. And the, the reason I picked this, because obviously we did the reality era with Punk and Cena last time. But for me, like in many ways, when I think of the reality era, I actually think about this match. Um, and I think about the the birth of the right side of the pond. You know, we <laughs> this, this, this came in, you know, our third or, or fourth week. And I remember, you know, we were doing 101, and uh, Joey and Maz just did a half hour discussion of this show uh, the week before. They'd slated the idea of the card and said it looked disgustingly boring. And then this show happened <laughs> um, <laughs> and it and it had that match and it, it. It was the reality era at its absolute best in that, you know, you had the longtime darling heel in Dolph Ziggler who you know, was, was finally the world champion. Um, and you had Alberto Del Rio who, you know, was the kind of guy who represented, I suppose, you know, the Vince McMahon, um, stubbornness at the time. This is a pre Roman Reindeer. Era, and I think people were starting to think, you know, this Del Rio thing, Vince sees himself in Del Rio. It's the whole, you know, you've got the car, you've got the personal announcer and all those things. Mm. And they have this match where it, it's all based around the the fact that Ziggler's title reign got off to a rocky start because he got a concussion and couldn't work. Um, and they really went for it. And it, it's it's almost similar in in the fact we just talk about a very raw match in um, in Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, and this is kind of similar. It's like I remember watching it almost kind of so sucked in, I kind of watched it through my hands, because at a certain point, like, the kicks just started to feel so uncomfortable to watch, yeah. um, and it was professional wrestling at its best, from AJ Lee's performance um, as the ballet, uh, uh, the way in which the referee um, conducts himself during it, um, and the kind of, you know, the, the double turn that essentially happened in the course of the match, which we talked about obviously Austin and uh, and Bret Hart last week, and you know it, it, this is a little bit different in that uh, you could probably say that Ziggler from the reaction he got when he cashed in, mm. you know, was was kind of there anyway, and people have been looking for an excuse to to cheer Dolph Ziggler for quite a long time, but nevertheless, it, it's executed incredibly artfully um, and. I mean, you've talked about before the the kind of misuse of, of, of Ziggler after this match, but it is probably his his greatest achievement as a pro wrestler. Um and of course he was a guy that was noted for his selling um and he got to do it here um at his best. And I think it's like people sometimes think of the reality as being Daniel Bryan, CM Punk, and the the kind of the the various storylines that revolved around those two. Um but it was much more than that. And I think the reason why we, we hold it up as being the best example of what a modern wrestling product might look like is, is because they took the idea of the fans having some knowledge and they used it in storylines that were intelligently crafted and the matches that went with them were intelligent and good matches. And there were some bad matches along the way and there were some not so good pay-per-views. But on the whole, the general quality of what they were doing, the general consistency of the feel of the product was really, it was there week to week. You knew what they were trying to do. It was the reality era and a fair amount of storylines had some sort of reality link, um, whereas now it's a hodgepodge. What would you say this 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 era's defining feature is, apart from um chaos really <laughs> uh and and excess and not knowing what their direction is and here they picked a direction from you know whether by accident or not from you know the summer of 2011 onwards they picked a direction and they stuck with it um and it yielded some incredibly positive results of which of course this match was won and i think if you're choosing a hipster list of matches if you take the obvious reality era match, which is Punk versus Cena, then this has got to be the hipster flip side of it.
0: I think that it's, I mean, the the key thing that you've said there, I think is the fact that it's such a clear example uh, of how it could only really have happened uh, in the reality era Once you get past a certain point historically, uh, I will grant, you know, that you could you could pull this kind of story much sooner. But a key element to its success, in fact, the only real element to its success in some ways, is the fact that fans were aware Dolph Ziggler had had a concussion. If the fans, if the audience isn't aware of that fact, then the entire drama of the match... Maybe not the entire drama of the match, because it would build up if if someone's kicking the guy in the head enough times throughout. But it certainly wouldn't be anywhere near the level that it is. It was only because fans knew Ziggler had been concussed, and I remember at the time people were thinking, "Is this like is the are they are they like doing some kind of weird dangerous shoot type thing with this or what?" There was some some murmurings as 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 to you know how real it was, and that was when the reality era was at its best. Um, you know blurring the line between reality and kayfabe is such an old and simple idea but the the reality era did it in in an interesting and i think in a a way that was unique to its time or at least felt yeah. yeah felt unique to its time um and this is one of the era's best successes i haven't actually watched it in a long time and i'd be curious to see how it stands up if i went back and revisited it now i think it's one of ziggler's I think it's one of Ziggler's best matches easily Um, in terms of the, the maturity of it. There's a, there's a, one of the reasons why, you know, I think Ziggler kind of, and it's one of many and, and a lot of them to be fair to the performer aren't his own fault. A lot of them do fall on the fault of the company who never seemed to give his character any closure to stories. And this was a prime example. Um, But, uh I think sometimes he is he's his own worst enemy in the ring and his idea of of proving that he's the best wrestler he often leans towards being the showiest wrestler and it's not always the case. You know, I I enjoy most performances from wrestlers that are statesmanlike, that are commanding, that are uh, you know, unflinchingly confident, and this is one of them from Ziggler. This was a performance from Ziggler that showed you know a nuanced understanding and an an ability to tell a different kind of story that didn't rely on breathtaking athletics uh it was an emotively capturing story that they told um and that's so rare or at least much rarer than it should be um over the course of the last 10 20 years uh i think i think in fact i'm I'm leaning towards saying his best match the more i i, I told myself about it but i don't know if i'd go quite that far yet but I think, you know, if you want to because we're talking Rushmore's here and if you want to talk and you've sort of just said it yourself, Mav, if you want to talk about a match to represent the reality era, which is the most successful creative period they've had um arguably since the end of of the first hard part of the first brand extension sort of circa 2004 2005, you know, the reality era being the most creatively successful period since then, I think. Um, and you want a match to represent it if you're not going to go Cena um, Cena Punk and you're not going to go because the other one obviously is is the authority and Bryan of course um, this is a very very worthy kind of third arm to that to that trifecta uh, even though it's, it's kind of flown under the radar and I think some of that is because maybe it's got Del Rio in it and Del Rio's legacy in WWE is a spotty one at best Uh, uh, particularly because much later in his career he sort of became overshadowed by events away from the ring. And I mean, Del Rio was a hell of a performer. This was, the, I mean, because let's talk about that. In fact, you and I have gone to bat for his 2013 many times. You could argue that he had the best 2013 out of anybody on the roster. He was on fire from January right through to December that year. Uh, and this is arguably his best match of that year as well, his MVP match. Um, because I think, you know, you, you you would be warranted calling him the MVP of that year in WWE, quite honestly. Um so, there's that aspect to it as well. So, I think it's definitely the most hipster of all of our hipster picks, uh, but I think it's certainly a justified one nonetheless.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, uh, when we talked about uh, influence last week, I think the influence of this match was in some ways, you know, as far reaching as some of the more famous, well, I mean, is that yeah. the right word? Like, Real Sierra mm-hmm. matches, you know, because injury angles are as old as time. But I can't ever recall an injury angle apart from Marty Ginetti getting his knee shattered by Hercules' chain. What was that, Sure Michael's? Sure like, Michael's knee getting shattered by Hercules' chain. Apart from that, uh, I can't think of a more effective injury angle. <laughs> 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 All right, I was thinking, was, that was Even, <laughs> <laughs> it's the absolute flabbergasted sigh
0: from the <laughs> time I explained that. Just, I can't think of any better injury angle other than this injury angle. Literally, no one since it happened has thought of SummerSlam '90. It's like it, it's, it, the first, it, it's the it, first, the first match, out. the first match on the card. Like
1: you know, I'm I a love bit, it. I'm right I'm, there with you, man. I think I, it's awesome. I was devastated as a child by that by that event.
0: Anyway, I mean, that's 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 a breath t- literally a breathtaking uh a hipster reference there so <laughs> well, it's appropriate to the
1: content of today's show i think isn't it? <laughs> um but yeah, like you know ziggler's career is as we talked about when we 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 talked about intercontinental titles and stuff before um you know a story of y- you get great matches out of him, you occasionally get a great story out of him, but you never seem to get both
0: in a row um and, and maybe this is the closest. It's it's Ziggler's bus stop of a match. You wait all his career for one and then two come along at once. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, what ifs are
1: always a dangerous thing. But, uh, you know, this really should have been it for him. This should have been the moment. Yeah. Um, and it's it's odd because actually in the reality era, they didn't fumble very much. I know a lot of people would argue that Daniel Bryan was a fumble until they they until WrestleMania 30. But we've always argued that all of that was planned um, to to be the way that it was. Um, And, you know, Ziggler is the is a notable fumble on their part um, from that from that time period. It's interesting to kind of think, you know, if he had gained that sort of that sort of main event prominence, you know, what? uh, a proper Punk and Ziggler program might have looked like, you know, what a proper Punk and sorry Brian and Ziggler program might have looked like, you know. There's there's all sorts of possibilities in that
0: sort of time frame that maybe we didn't get a chance to see. Um, I think I think 2013 is a raft of lost opportunities for Ziggler, quite honestly, um, because the other one that always springs to my mind is the Royal Rumble that year, uh, one of our favourite Royal Rumbles in 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 each instance for us, but. I remember him coming out first, and this was when I was a big Ziggler fan. He came out first that year. Jericho came out second. I was convinced it was his year to win yeah, it. And I, I know a lot, of, I, a lot of people, you know, had predicted the Cena victory because they were going for Rock Cena too. But it wasn't like there wasn't a precedent for them to pass over a Rumble victory for the big main event at WrestleMania and go for someone a little less you know, a little lower down the the roster. And when you talk about statesman-like performances from Ziggler, you have to look at the 2013 Rumble as well because it is a breathtaking performance from him, not just in terms of the the physicality and the physical aspect of it and the conditioning to go coast to coast, but just the way he carries himself through the whole match. He feels like a star. That could have been a tipping point for him. This match we're talking about could have been a tipping point for him. And hell, even if they'd have just followed this match we're talking about up with some narrative closure, I wrote at the time in 2013 a column arguing for them to go to a steel cage match at SummerSlam between him and Del Rio, which I think still to this day would have worked, um, or any kind of third match between them, and, and allowed Ziggler to get that win back and to overcome the odds, and I think that would have been the making of him as a as a top star. But you know, it was what it was. It didn't happen. They transitioned him into some weird mixed tag match at SummerSlam instead, and. The rest was history, and uh, you know, and there would be moments later down the line, of course, where they could have had a tipping point for him that never happened. So, um, you know, Ziggler—I mean, Ziggler—arguably may even be the biggest lost opportunity in terms of a top star that wasn't um, in in a long, long time, if not in the conversation for one of the biggest lost opportunities in that sense ever. Um, and again, that alone makes a, another argument as to why this match should be included in a conversation like this.
1: Yeah, absolutely absolutely so we've got four more of these uh, coming next week so that should be exciting for you all. um what so, what magical hipster reference will mav plum next week i wonder uh I'll, I'll hit the tape and i'll uh i'll start watching for some stuff uh and we'll, and we'll go from there um yeah so we will be out next week uh, in the meantime listen to the rest of lop radio's offerings um and of course all of our other friends for example uh, the doc whose show is on uh, different network to ours, but you know you can find it still on the LOP homepage, along with
0: us and everyone else. Um, so, from and also just before you sign from, off, do make sure if you haven't already, folks, to listen to Sports Entertainment is Dead in a couple of weeks' time, October the ninth. I will be joined by my friend here, Maverick, uh, and we will be uh, revisiting our one hundred and one ways. Um, in the first of a new format for SCID that'll last for the following year, uh, and we'll be looking in 101 style. If you're an old school pond listener, uh, at Shawn Michaels versus Triple H's unsanctioned street fight in 2002 at SummerSlam. Do you know I'd actually forgotten
1: what two matches we recorded? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was listening to that, going, what did we do? Oh right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, do listen to that. I had, I had a lot of fun with plan recording those shows. So absolutely a must listen all right guys so we're gonna get out of here uh, until next week we'll see you later on bye